Welcome back to That's Ancient History. I'm your host, Jean Mias, and today's episode is another instalment in my Myths Digest series. If you haven't listened to one of these before on my podcast, we have one each season. Season one was Procne and Philomela, and season two was Helen of Troy. And in these episodes, I go through the story and history of a classical myth and explore its significance to ancient society, what it meant to the people that told and retold it over and over again, and uh, what the original literature says about it. As you probably already see in the title to this episode, you'll know that this Myth Digest is all about Pandora, the Pandora of Pandora's box. Although, as we will learn during this podcast episode, there never was any box to begin with. So, without further ado, let's have a little chat about Pandora. It's actually within our earliest piece of surviving ancient Greek literature that we find the earliest reference to Pandora herself. And that is the work of Hesiod. Hesiod was an ancient Greek poet who we believe was writing in the late 8th century BC, either slightly earlier or a similar time to Homer. Two of his extant works, which you will often find bound up together in translations, are the Theogony and Works and Days. And in both of these poems, we encounter the infamous Pandora. However, in the Theogony, she's never actually named. It's not until Works and Days that we hear that this woman is in fact named Pandora. The name Pandora itself actually comes from the ancient Greek words uh, pan and dora, meaning all gifts or all things. And that will become more significant as we follow through this story. But to tell the story of Pandora, we actually have to begin with a man. And that man was Prometheus, who wasn't an ordinary mortal man, but instead a titan of the earlier generation of gods to the Olympians prior to Zeus and his fellows. Now, Zeus and the other Olympians overthrew the generation of titans who continued to exist after their downfall, one of whom was Prometheus. And Prometheus had a soft spot for the human race. Animosity arose between Zeus, king of the gods, and Prometheus during the trick of Mekon, as it's famously known. During this event of ancient Greek mythology that we read about in Hesiod's Theogony, the gods and the mortal humans come together to decide on the matter of sacrifice and what will be sacrificed to the gods of the animals that they eat. What do the humans get to keep and eat and what do they then sacrifice to the gods? Prometheus, however, is a wily character and um, after his generation was overthrown, he thought it might be fun to play a little trick on Zeus and the other Olympians. He suggests to the humans that when they divide up the animal, they wrap the bones and the sort of less desirable parts of the animal in the fat so they they look incredibly tasty and hide the actual meat under the uglier organs. Through doing this, Zeus then picks on behalf of the gods which part of the animal they would like and is tricked into picking the bones covered in fat. Naturally, this angers the king of the gods and he decides to curse the humans by taking away from them fire. Now, of course, we all know how useful fire is when it comes to um, keeping oneself warm and fed. So this was a pretty big deal. Like I already mentioned, though, Prometheus was in fact wily. His name actually comes from the Greek meaning quick-witted. And he then steals from Zeus fire to return it to the humans out of sympathy. As let's be honest, it's his fault that they incurred the wrath of Zeus. 
It's not difficult to guess, however, what happens next, or at least what might happen next. Zeus does not take this line down, and this is when we meet Pandora, because Pandora is, in fact, Zeus's punishment for the humans and Prometheus who steal fire from him. Now, up until this point, the race of mortals has been entirely made up of men. There were female gods, but there were no female mortals. So, Zeus decides to create the first female women. He gathers his fellow gods and together they create who we then know as Pandora. One of the quotes that we read in Hesiod's Works and Days goes as follows and gives us a little hint into what Zeus is planning. It reads, Then into her breast the intermediary, the killer of Argus, sets lies and guileful words and a thievish character by the plans of deep thundering Zeus. It then continues, and the messenger of the gods placed a voice in her and named this woman Pandora. Since all those who have their mansions on Olympus had given her a gift, a woe for men who lived on bread. But already we start to get hints at the character, or at least the intended character of Pandora. She tells lies, is untrustworthy, and most importantly is a woe for men who live on bread. Similarly, in the Theogony, she is described in ancient Greek as Kalon Kakon, which means a beautiful evil. The quote reads, but when he, Zeus, had made the beautiful evil to be the price for the blessing, he brought her out, delighting in the finery which the bright-eyed daughter of a mighty father had given her, to the place where the other gods and men were. But in order to introduce Pandora into society, Zeus gives her as a gift to Epimetheus. Sound familiar? Well, Epimetheus was the brother of Prometheus. Now, Prometheus means quick-witted, then Epimetheus means slow-witted. Epimetheus was nowhere near as clever as his brother and was in fact warned by Prometheus not to take any gifts from the gods. But when he was presented with such a beautiful character, how could he resist? It's at this point that you might be wondering though, where is that box? <laughs> Well, it's at this point, my friends, I share with you the biggest mistake of popular culture since the original myth of Pandora, which is that there never was a box. There was, however, a gift that came with Pandora. When Zeus gave Pandora as a wife to Epimetheus, she brought with her a jar or a vase. Now, the ancient Greek word that's used is a pithos, which is a very specific type of ancient Greek jar, the significance of which we will discuss a little bit later. However, when he gifts Pandora this jar, he warns her that she is never to open it. Zeus's plan, however, is always that Pandora will open the jar. The suggestion of this myth is simply put that women cannot help themselves <laughs> and eventually after some time living in matrimony with Epimetheus, Pandora unstoppers the jar. Now out from within this container come all of the ills of the world. This could mean whatever you want it to mean and means different things in different texts. But if you imagine plague, famine, all of that fun stuff. However, one thing does not escape from the jar and that is hope. Pandora manages to restopper the jar before hope too escapes. And that is the sort of small silver lining that humanity has to hold on to amidst all of these other disasters. Now, why is it exactly that this myth is so significant to our understanding of ancient Greece? Well, it's with Pandora that women are first introduced to the mythological landscape and in the beliefs of the ancient Greeks, the world. 
And it's with this tale and it is with the subsequent interaction between men and women in Greek mythology that we start to see the construction of gender in ancient Greek myth that then can then be interpreted and applied to everyday ancient Greek life. The word gender itself is actually a relatively modern word and it simply delineates kind of society's way of distinguishing what makes men and women different. It is not something that is fixed, it is a social construct. But regardless of whether the word itself is modern, that doesn't mean that the concept didn't exist in earlier historical periods. And the Pandora myth is something through which we can see this in ancient Greece. To return to our original text, Hesiod says that for from her, Pandora, is the race of women and female kind. Of her is the deadly race and tribe of women who live amongst mortal men to their great trouble. No help meets in hateful poverty, but only in wealth. Now we haven't quite established exactly what the Theogony in Works and Days set out to do. The Theogony is the story of the gods and the relationship between the gods and the mortals, whereas Works and Days explores what life is like for mortals and can often include personal anecdotes from Hesiod himself. One of the constant strands of this work as well is the portrayal of women as somewhat of a useless distraction for men that prevents them from getting work done and is nothing but a burden. It is at this point that we must consider to what extent Hesiod's own personal feelings are influencing his portrayal of the relationship between men and women and subsequently his telling of the myth of Pandora. Something I always tell my students when we're reading ancient texts is to remember the biases of the authors. There is never one version of a myth and each author is going to represent things in a way that suits their version of reality. Because of the way in which gender is constructed within this myth, many scholars have interpreted the reference to the pithos or jar in one very interesting way. Pithoi were actually very large terracotta jars used for storage in ancient Greek society, either for liquids or for different grains, uh, often used to transport these commodities overseas um, and, and, and by ship. For some, however, the pithos may actually symbolically refer to Pandora's womb. Now that adds a whole new layer of meaning to this story. If the pithos either explicitly refers to or hints at the idea of the female womb as the vessel for all of the evils of the world, we can instead interpret it as meaning children. So in this interpretation of the myth, men suddenly rely on women for the continuation of their race. Uh, men are not um, immortal but in fact pass away and must rely on a next generation to carry on their work. Now, in ancient Greek society, children are both a blessing and a curse. For the same reasons that a child can carry on a father's lineage, but they can also take advantage of their father and can either dishonour or even be a threat to him. So, although uh, children could be seen as an evil, as a symbol of uh, their mortality, they are, all, they are also the hope for the future. And that's where uh, we, we see this interpretation sort of blossoming, um, that comparison between the ills and the hope. Pithoi themselves were also sometimes used as coffins in ancient Greek society. They were used to bury the dead. So not just a storage container for grains, but coffins, yes, um, they were multi-purpose. 
And because of this, they very much represent both life and death through that association with the womb and that use as a coffin. The interpretation itself is supported by Hesiod's text, which reads, The father will not agree with his children, nor the children with their father, nor guest with his host, nor comrade with comrade, nor will brother be dear to brother as aforetime. Men will dishonour their parents as they grow quickly old and will carpet them, chiding them with bitter words, hard-hearted they, not knowing the fear of the gods. They will not repay their aged parents the cost of their nurture, for might shall be their right and one man will sack another city. So with this myth, we see the introduction of womankind to the society of mortals, and with her comes children, as well as all of the doom and gloom and ills of the world. In mythology, the marriage of Epimetheus and Pandora basically marks the beginning of the end of a peaceful life. And it's not something that can be avoided because Hesiod tells us in his Theogony that along with Pandora, he gave man a second evil to be the price for the good they had. Whoever avoids marriage and the sorrows that women cause and will not wed reaches deadly old age without anyone to tend his years. And though he at least has no lack of livelihood while he lives, yet when he is dead, his kinsfolk divide his possessions amongst them. And thus we come full circle. The message of this text is that man and woman must marry in order to procreate. And although dangers come with procreation, so too do men rely on their children for their future. But myths were never simple stories in ancient Greek society. There were real repercussions of the precedent set by the myth of Pandora and the construction of gender that it presented. One way in which we see this interpretation of gendered roles manifesting itself in ancient Greek society is through the treatment of pregnant women or women who have recently given birth. For example, we have one of the sacred laws of Cyrene, which tells us of how women are polluted after they have given birth and how this pollution can affect those around them. The concept of pollution was something that was very real to ancient Greeks. In ancient Athenian society, we constantly see references to pollution or the ancient Greek word miasma in legal texts because criminals were seen as polluting society. The law of Cyrene, however, tells us that the woman who gives birth pollutes the household and the house. She pollutes anyone within the house, but she does not pollute anyone outside the house, unless he comes inside. Any person who is inside will be defiled for three days, but he will not pass on the pollution to another, no matter where this person goes. This suggests in the aftermath of birth, women were restricted more so even than they were in, in everyday life from free movement and from who they could spend time with because of the danger they posed as new mothers. Pandora's story is actually the story of all Greek women. And I'm sure you can already see similarities in this ancient Greek myth with myths of gender construction from other cultures, most famously perhaps the myth of Adam and Eve from the Bible, where Eve is responsible for destroying paradise for her and her husband. Before Eve is tricked by the devil in the form of a snake into eating an apple from the forbidden tree, she and Adam essentially live in what is a utopia. They are free and they are happy and they know nothing of shame or the ills of the world. And as a result of Eve eating the apple in the Bible, humanity is forever punished for the act of one woman. 
Now, I'm sure that you can imagine that I myself find these myths far more revealing about the societies that wrote them down and propagated them throughout their civilizations than women themselves. I certainly don't consider myself or other women in any way responsible for all the ills of the world, and I really hope you're on the same side as me with that. But these are incredibly interesting stories to demonstrate the way in which these early patriarchal societies very much excuse their behaviour and the way in which their societies are stratified and constructed. Interestingly enough, despite the infamy of Pandora's box itself, I found it difficult to find many classical reception examples of the Pandora myth. Book retellings, films based on her story, I've yet to come across anything quite like that, although there's plenty for other myths. The only one that immediately springs to mind is an episode of Charm, the television series, which I was a massive fan of as a preteen and teenager, and it still holds a very special place in my heart. And in this episode, we meet one of the descendants of Pandora. In their version of the Pandora story, it is Pandora who is actually responsible for reopening the box and saving humanity by restoring all of the evils inside it as a prison. Then each of her subsequent female relatives over the generations is tasked with guarding this box and preventing it from being opened. I think those involved in the creation of the television show Charmed are actively trying to give Pandora some of her agency back and fight against some of the sexist stereotypes that it perpetuates. However, this is one of very, very few pop culture references to Pandora that I've managed to find. But if you know of any, do let me know over on Twitter. I'm at That's Ancient and I'm always interested in hearing about pop culture references and retellings of Greek myths. If you would like to learn more about the ancient Pandora and do a little bit of reading after listening to this podcast episode though, I think it will come as no surprise to you that I would of course recommend picking up Hesiod's Theogony and Works in Days. Not only to learn about Pandora, but a lot of the myths that really establish the relationships between the mortals and the gods that then have a lot of influence later on throughout mythology. But you can also look to authors like Apollodorus and Hyginus, who in their collected myths mention Pandora alongside many others. Now I know I've probably mentioned both these names before, in particular Apollodorus is somebody that I constantly bring up because honestly if you want an introduction to ancient mythology that is ancient literature itself, Apollodorus is the place I always suggest going. It's basically like a short story collection filled to the brim with Greek myths. I love it. I think you'll love it, so why not read it if you enjoy these Myth Digest episodes? But if you haven't listened to the previous two, like I mentioned, there was one on Procne and Philomela, who were Athenian princesses in season one, and there was one on Helen of Troy in season two. If you'd like to request future episodes of these Myth Digest or any other podcast episodes, then just let me know on Twitter, like I mentioned before, at That's Ancient. Top of my list at the moment is definitely Theseus and the Minotaur, but more suggestions and more requests are always welcome. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this episode of That's Ancient History. Thank you so much for stopping by. Do give us a follow on whatever podcast app you're listening to, as well as Twitter. And if you want to leave a review, I wouldn't complain. Until next time, though.